Welcome to Liquid Church Media. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered live at Liquid Church by Pastor Tim Lucas. For more content, log on to liquidchurch.com or visit one of our campuses in the New Jersey metro area. Liquidchurch.com, where truth is relevant and grace wins. All right, hey, welcome to Liquid, everybody. Uh, my name is Pastor Tim. I'm glad that you are with us for an important series that we're doing called The Divided States of America. This is really kind of a critical series in the life of our nation and our church. And if you're like me, you've probably been watching the news over the past you know, year. It's been pretty depressing um, as our country appears more divided than ever. We are racially divided. We're politically divided, spiritually divided with um, you know, mass shootings in Charleston, in Orlando, in Dallas, in Baton Rouge, and claiming the lives across the board. Uh, white police officers, black men, gay Latinos, there's like these, these fault lines have uh, been ripped open, revealing fear, hatred, and confusion coming really from all sides. And there's a, sen- there's a sense right now that the center of our nation is no longer holding. It's, it's like unraveling before our eyes along the edges into a chaos and bitter division. And so as a church, we really feel like God has called us to step into that divide and be part of the solution. Because the church really is the one thing in our world that can offer hope. And that is the message of Jesus Christ. The gospel or good news that Jesus commissioned Christ followers everywhere with. He actually called us to be what the Bible calls ministers of reconciliation or repairing relationship. So in times of national crisis, we really believe it's the church's responsibility to kind of step up and lead the way in prayer and repentance and in healing conversation. Now that's a tall task. There's no magic wand. There's no single sermon that can certainly accomplish that. But what we did is last Sunday, we started a candid conversation about race and faith here on this stage live. We were privileged to hear from Pastor Keon Carpenter and Jason Luke, two staff members at Liquid who gave us a great gift. They kind of opened up their lives and hearts and shared transparently about their experiences as black men who are living and raising families in a majority white culture. I want to just thank again the families of uh, Pastor Keon and Jason. Would you thank them with me? That was a lot of risk. That was a lot of vulnerability. If you missed it, you should definitely, you'll want to check that out or listen online at liquidchurch.com. But we just dipped our toe in the water, right, about this topic of race. But I hope that conversation kind of opened your eyes, spoke to your heart, because it really is the tip of the iceberg. There's so much to say from so many angles that inevitably things get left out. And honestly, just heart to heart, that's why most churches avoid talking about race. Because they're like, I don't want to light the fuse. It's going to be too awkward There's going to be misunderstanding. So you know what? Let's not rock the boat because racism is an uncomfortable subject to talk about. But you have to understand, guys, if we're serious about helping heal the divided states of America, we have to talk about the sin of racism. You know, eight years ago when our country elected the first black president in our nation's history, I think a lot of people kind of assumed like I did, like maybe that was one of the final nails in the coffin as far as racism was concerned. Like it was kind of like a sign like we're moving to this kind of post-racial America. And yet here we are eight years later, seemingly more divided than ever with these deep racial wounds and bitterness kind of ripped open. And what I've noticed is that there, you probably saw this, there are really two extremes that kind of short-circuit any constructive conversation about this issue. On one extreme, you have kind of racial blindness. People kind of like deny that racism exists. Like, you know, I don't know. They're really, I don't, I don't think there's much injustice or prejudice in our culture. If anything... It's little isolated pockets here and there, you know, a few bad apples. Of course, it's getting harder and harder to kind of turn a blind eye to the reality on the streets and say, wow, actually, there seems to be more systemic. But racial blindness denies discrimination is even a factor 
which is untrue. On the other hand, there's race baiting, which says race is always the defining issue in any conversation. See, from racial blindness, racial baiting swings the pendulum and says everything is a matter of ethnicity, of which race is dominating or oppressing the other. And so in racial baiting, the sins of the majority are 100% to blame for the suffering of minorities, which is also untrue. Because race baiting only leads to honestly blame and finger pointing and hardened hearts and more division. But between these two extremes, racial blindness and racial baiting, I believe the church is called to step in with the truth and grace of Jesus Christ. Unafraid of acknowledging that there are glaring gaps in our culture, but transcending that with really a message of hope that can unite believers of every race, every nation, every tribe, every tongue as one in Jesus Christ. See, that word gospel means good news. And you have to understand, news is only good when it shines light into dark places. So at Liquid, we believe the light of Christ actually, we want that to invade the darkness of racism, exposing, illuminating, penetrating, confronting for the purposes of ultimately healing and reconciling our broken world. So we're going to go there, if that's all right with you. Today, I want to share with you a message called The Sin of Racism. And I know that's pretty blunt. It's kind of in your face, but I'm like, hey, why soft pedal the issue or kind of tap dance around it? I believe the church needs to be the safest place to talk about this stuff. Amen? Because the solution ain't coming from Washington. The solution isn't coming from the media. There's just people talking, yelling past each other and digging in their heels. But the church needs to be the place where you can talk about this stuff face-to-face, candidly, with kind of an open heart. If we're going to reflect God's dream for his family, a family that is once dazzling in its diversity, but unified in its purpose. A glorious multiracial family that reflects the color of heaven. So let me pray for us and then we'll dive in. Would you bow your head with me? Spirit of God, would you just open our eyes and open our hearts to your truth right now? Father, I ask that your spirit of unity would be here. Would you just write even now, Father, we pray protection over this church family. I ask God, would you lower our defenses, remove our filters so we can hear what you have to say from your word? May this be a safe place under the banner of Christ's grace. Would you just kind of bond us together right now as one family around the kitchen table, but one family united in Christ so that we can be that minister of healing and reconciliation for our neighbors. I ask that in the name of Jesus, everyone said together, amen. Amen. All right. Well, let me first begin by kind of saying, you know, when I say racism, I need to expand that because racism is not just about like the color of someone's skin, all right? Whether you're white like me, or you're black, or you're brown, or you're yellow, racism is about a lot more than the percent of pigment in your skin. In fact, one of the things that I'm learning is that even within races that have the same skin color, there's actually intra-race racism. For for instance, in the white community, there's always been historically kind of a division between like white collar and working class, right? Like, well, you know, I work on Wall Street, but you know, not like the rednecks, right? You know, there's like division within white culture. In the Latino community, there is hostility between uh, people of Mexican descent and Salvadorans. And if you're white, you're like, wait, aren't they both Hispanic? Why why is there hostility? Oh, there's hostility. There's animosity between Dominicans and Haitians. That's how pervasive the sin of racism is. There's actually inter-race racism. So understand, racism isn't just about skin color. Racism comes from this attitude that says, I am better than you. I am superior to you. I... I'm more valuable than you, and I actually have more worth than you, people. It's the dehumanization of any person that declares they are less than or inferior to you in any way. That's the toxic spirit of racism. It transcends color. 
If you think about it, every evil in the world throughout history, from genocide to slavery to the wars in the Middle East right now, to police brutality, to black men targeting and shooting white police. It's been birthed out of this satanic idea that I am somehow superior and I stand in judgment of the other. And you'll notice I, I called it satanic. It is. Because racism is a special sin. You'll see in a, in a, from the text. It destroys the foundational truth of God that every man, child, and woman is created equally in his image. Regardless of race, gender, social status, ethnic background, we're all created by God as equals, every human being worthy of equal respect and dignity, honor, and love. Because here's the reason. God is our father and creator. So understand, racism isn't just like a white issue or a black issue or a Latino or an Asian issue. It's a human issue that affects every single person in this room. There's racism in every campus at Liquid, and it's not all Anglo, Okay. And that's today why we want to hit this head on, the sin of racism, because we have to kind of expose and illuminate it with the truth of God's word if we're going to help heal the divisions tearing our world apart. And we're going to do that by turning to the book of Acts chapter 10 in the New Testament. So if you have your Bible, you want to flip there in your phone. We also put it in your message notes. You can follow along today. I want to show you how the early church exposed and then overcame the sin of cultural racism. As I mentioned last week, the early church was deeply divided along racial, class, and gender lines. It was not just two groups of people. It was six groups who were bitterly divided. Jews versus Gentiles. Jews considered themselves the people of God, and they saw Gentiles as second-class citizens. They were impure. They were unclean. They called the Samaritans half-breeds. Then there were slaves versus masters. Slaves were typically poor, often from another country, and they were owned by rich masters. And women versus men, male, female. Women had no rights in the first century. It was a patriarchal culture, so there was this deep gender bias. In fact, watch, this is crazy. This is nuts. In my research this week, these groups were so bitterly divided in the first century culture that if you were a Jewish man, you know what you did at first thing every morning? You'd get out of bed, and you'd get on your knees, and you would recite a prayer that went like this. Oh, God, my creator, I bless you and thank you that you have not made me a Gentile blessing one. I thank you secondly, O God, that you have not made me a slave, blessing two. And God, I praise and bless your name that you have not made me a woman. That was the three-part morning prayer every Jewish boy memorized from his first words that he was able to speak. I want you to imagine, ladies, right, you know, first thing in the morning, your husband swings his knees out of bed, and you hear him just say, God, praise you, good morning, thank you for not making me a woman. And then he says, good morning, sweetheart. You want to get coffee? I don't think so. I don't think so. Obviously, that's about as bigoted as a belittling prayer as it gets. It's racist, it's sexist, it's classist. But this was the world Jesus was born into. This is the toxic culture the church was birthed in. Bitter divisions deeply embedded in the fabric. And nobody questioned it until Jesus arrives. And suddenly, here comes this working class, poor Jewish carpenter, and he's preaching and teaching about the kingdom of God. And he says, this is what it looks like. And he reaches out to all the untouchables. Not the people of power. He reaches out to the lame, the lepers, the prostitute, the tax collectors. And Jesus is like, I represent the kingdom of God in the flesh. And he reaches across these deep divisions with great compassion. He welcomes the marginalized into his inner circle. It was so counter to the culture, it got him killed. Crucified on the cross by hardline Jewish church leaders who were complicit with the Roman government because it was too subversive. Jesus threatened the status quo. 
And of course, three days later, we know Jesus was raised from the dead, proving that love is more powerful than hate. Amen? That God will actually conquer Satan's sin and death. So here in Acts 10, here's them setting the scene. This is 15 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And so you'd think things would have changed by now. That like Jesus' sacrificial example of love and compassion for all people would have taken root in his followers, but it didn't. Even his original disciples still harbored deeply racist attitudes. For example, take the apostle Peter. If you're Catholic, Peter's like the first pope, okay? If you're Protestant, he was kind of point leader in the early church. But Peter was tight with Jesus. He was one of the first to follow Jesus. He witnessed his miracles. Peter's the guy who walked on water. He was in the garden when Jesus was betrayed. He denied him three times. But then after the resurrection, Jesus appears to Peter, pulls him aside, says, Peter, I forgive you. And in fact, watch, I want you to lead my church. Peter was handpicked by Jesus to lead the early church. There was just one problem. Peter was still a bigot. <laughs> he was raised Jewish and did not like Gentiles or non-Jews. He considered them unclean second class. It's just how Peter was raised. Every morning, this guy got on his knees and prayed that prayer. Thanks for not making me like them. His daddy taught him this, that prayer. His granddaddy taught his daddy that prayer. You don't go where they go. You don't eat what they eat. You're kosher, kid. You ain't like them, so avoid contact. And that's where we pick up our story in Acts 10. One day, Peter is out spending time with God. He's having devotions. He's praying. And God gives him a vision. Peter sees this giant sheet come down from heaven. It's filled with all these like animals and birds. And God says, go ahead and eat. Here's what Peter said, verse 14. He says, surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure. What's the word there, church? Unclean. Peter was like, God, I ain't eating that stuff. I'm kosher. That means I only eat foods that go with my strict Jewish diet. I ain't eating no bacon burger, no pork roll, man. That ain't my culture. It's unclean. It's in New Jersey. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. In other words, God's like, whatever I create, there's ain't nothing second class. And this vision happens three times because Peter's so thick-headed. So understand that racism actually first requires revelation by God. He has to reveal it. Before God can eradicate the prejudice in his people, he has to open the eyes of our heart because all of us are blind to bias in some way. That's the thing about prejudice. It's very hard to spot in the mirror because it's hidden in the human heart. So he says, I'm going to teach Peter a lesson. I'm going to send him on a little road trip to the other side of the tracks to the house of a guy named Cornelius. Now, if you look in your notes, you'll see Cornelius is a Roman soldier from the Italian regiment, meaning he's a Gentile. He's not a Jew. And not only that, as a Roman soldier, he represents the terrorists of terrorists in the Jewish world. He was the sworn enemy of Israel. And Peter's like, you sure you want me to go talk with him? And God's like, yep, go to the house of Cornelius. So Peter crosses the tracks to this other side of town he's never been to. And here's what it says. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. And Cornelius, the soldier, was expecting them, and he called together his relatives and close friends. Now, just stop. I want you to imagine how Peter feels, right? He's left his Jewish friends behind, and he's walked into a city named for Caesar, the most violent non-Jew in the world, the guy who literally terrorizes his people. And Peter is a fish out of water. I'm guessing he kind of was a little bit nervous. I mean, he's like walking up on Cornelius' crib. He's a little bit nervous. And it says this, while talking with him, Peter went inside and found what? Say it together, a large gathering of people. So the whole hood is there having a barbecue. Peter the Jew walks into a house party and it's packed with Italians. All right, you ever been to an Italian house party? 
right? There's sauce on the stove, right? Sunday gravy, Sinatra's cranking on the stereo. Everybody's got a glass of Zinfandel. I know, sort of racist, sort of true. But that's just how, just, just how it rolls, all right? I imagine Peter walking in and being like, oh my gosh, like the, the, he, can, he can smell the bacon, the sausage frying in the pan, the meatballs. He's a kosher Joe. It's like, record skip. And all the heads turn, they're like, what, what? <laughs> and what does Peter say? What's his opening line? He said to them, you are well aware that is against our law for a Jew like me to associate with or visit a Gentile like you. That's an opening line you ever want to roll into a party, okay? <laughs> hey, everybody, my name's uh, Peter, and uh, hey, I think I just call it out. I think we all know, right? <laughs> we don't roll together, <laughs> right? Our races don't do this. In fact, it's, it's kind of against the law for me to even be here. See, this verse doesn't shake us because it says Jew and Gentile. But I want you, it will shock your heart if you just replace it with black and white. I want you to imagine if last week, you know, Pastor Keon, after the service, he invited me over to lunch. And I said, oh, Keon, I'd love to come over. But I think you're well aware that it's against the law for a white guy like me to associate with a black guy like you. You'd be like, what? What kind of crazy Jim Crow kind of talk is that? What is this, 1940s? Is this Mississippi? Black and white? Man, we don't roll together. We know it's against the law. Peter says this out loud. <laughs> it's super racist. Like it's a thought that maybe ran through his head, but most people don't say it. Peter blurts it out. Like our races don't roll together. Why? Because segregation was actually built into the Jewish law. But now watch what Peter says next because he almost makes it worse. He goes, he goes, awkward moment. But God has shown me, don't worry, brothers, that I shouldn't call anyone impure or unclean. In other words, hey, I want you guys to know up until this moment, Cornelius, thanks for having me in your house, but I just always assumed you and your, and your, your family were kind of, you know, second class. But God said I shouldn't do that anymore. <laughs> well, thanks for that clarification, right? Again, imagine a white guy rolls up into a backyard barbecue, right, you know, of African Americans. Excuse me. Hey, just want to let you guys, I used to see you as, as second class, but God said not to do that. I'd be nervous for that brother. That guy's going to get a beat down, right? In other words, Cornelius is probably like, you know, it took God to tell you that? What that tells me actually is that God may have said it, but you don't believe it. Because you spent your entire life and your daddy and your granddaddy and his great-granddaddy thinking that we are less than, inferior, unclean, impure. Thanks a lot, Peter. But now watch this. Let's just shift the emphasis. Give Peter a break. Peter says, but God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. In other words, God's done something on the inside of me. And I'm beginning to, to see things differently and, and think different thoughts than I did before. God's revealed something inside of my heart that I didn't even know was there. What did God reveal? Unfiltered racism. Prejudice. Just how ugly it is. See, if you're taking notes, the first thing racism requires to heal is it requires revelation. God actually has to reveal it to us up close and personal. Here it is. Why? Because as humans, we're all blind to bias. Every one of us was raised a certain way with a certain background. We're taught to see the world through like a certain filter, typically by our parents, our culture, our schooling, our religion reinforces that. And it naturally colors how we view the world. We see it with dividing lines. Well, I'm white. 
He's black, she's Latino, Peter's a Jew, Cornelius is a Gentile. We're different, we don't really mix. See, as humans, just, just, you get this, we naturally gravitate towards homogeny, sameness. That's just the human condition. We don't like, oh, I'd love to meet other people who are going to stretch me out of my comfort zone. We don't think that way. But God's dream is for racial unity. God actually invented variety, and he loves diversity. But Peter was taught to pray and see things another way because his daddy and his granddaddy and his great-granddaddy raised him to see another race as less than. See, that's why the sin of racism is so stubborn. Racism isn't just any old sin. It's a special kind of sin the Bible calls iniquity. You ever notice that in, in God's word, you'll see the Bible makes a distinction between sin and iniquity. For instance, in Psalm 32, the psalmist prays this. He says, then I acknowledged my sin to you, O God, and did not cover up, what's this word, church? Iniquity. Now, I always thought these were the same thing, like they're interchangeable. But there's a very important nuance here. See, sin is typically about like personal failure, right? Like, hey, I lied, I cheated, I lusted, I've fallen short of God's standard of holiness. That's sin, and it's often personal. But iniquity is broader. It's communal. Think of it this way. Iniquity is what happens when sin gathers momentum in a generation. I sin, you sin, a group of people sin, and nobody actually really repents of it. In fact, the sin gathers so much momentum, it actually becomes embedded in the fabric of the culture. The system, the structures of society, it's so deeply ingrained for future generations. It could be a family of people or even nations. Let me give you a classic example, difference. Say a woman gets pregnant and she does drugs. She does, you know, cocaine or meth during her pregnancy. That's sin. But then her baby is born and that baby is born addicted. That's iniquity. You understand? There's the original sin of the mother, but now the consequences are rolled forward to the next generation. That's iniquity. What started out as the personal choice of the mother or father is passed down to the, the child who becomes parents, and he passes it to their kids, and they pass it to their kids, and the cumulative consequences of sin ripple into future generations. It's what the Bible calls generational sin sometimes. If you have addiction in your family, you understand how this works. And over time, the sinful behavior becomes so tolerated and deeply woven into the fabric of communities and countries, it just is seen as normal. This is just the way things are. Now, what does this have to do with race? What's it have to do with race in America? In our country, guys, we have to acknowledge the fact that slavery and segregation was the original sin of America at the founding of our nation. Racism is the black eye on American history. That's just a fact, but understand something. It's also the iniquity still embedded in some of our social structures to this day. As Christians who are American, we're Christians first, guys, we need to mourn the fact that the church in this country condoned and even defended slavery and segregation based on the Bible. And that planted seeds of suspicion and distrust, and a lot of the bitter fruit we're seeing today is tied to that original sin. If you want to learn more about this, I can recommend a great book, very eye-opening. It's called America's Original Sin by Jim Wallace. I don't agree with everything that it says, but it is eye-opening. It basically explains how the black community in America has been in a state of emergency from the beginning. He traces the horrors of slavery, segregation, Jim Crow laws, civil rights, urban poverty, an epidemic of drugs and gun violence to this current epidemic of fatherlessness and mass incarceration in the inner city particularly. And he connects that generational iniquity to the current tensions we're even seeing now that just kind of flare up 
between the black community and law enforcement. See, racism isn't just individual sin. Historically, in our nation, it has been state-sponsored iniquity. The sin of our forefathers, their forefathers, their forefathers, the consequences continue to impact families, cultures, and communities in devastating ways. Now, time out, especially if you're white. Don't get defensive. Don't turn it to now, because I know what some of you are thinking. It's what I often think. I think, like, what, what's that, what does that have to do with me? I, I, have, I didn't own slaves. I, that's, a, that's atrocity. I, I don't have anything to do with that. Listen carefully. Listen. Acknowledging our failures as a nation doesn't mean white people are to blame for every problem, okay? This isn't about making people feel guilty for being white. That is false guilt. That's satanic. At the end of the day, every person of every race is responsible for their own individual choice. So don't mishear me, okay? The devil right now would love to distort my words. You hear them through a political filter, and then you get defensive. You stop listening, and you actually tune out the gospel truth. So let me be clear again. Every person from every race is responsible for their own individual choice. At the same time, the church needs to come clean and repent of the sin of racism and acknowledge its ongoing impact. As followers of Jesus, we are called to call out iniquity wherever we see it still embedded in our social fabric so we can actually move forward to true reconciliation. See, people are just like, hey, come on, that's the past. Let's just get on with things. You cannot move forward to healing and relationship until you acknowledge the past. If you're married, you understand this. This is why racism requires revelation, but then it also requires repentance. That's what Peter's doing here. He's not provoking his enemies. He's confessing his sin to them. He says to Cornelius, I was wrong. I, I'm sorry for my whole life. My daddy and my, my, my granddaddy and my great-granddaddy, and they were incredible men and gave me so much, but they also... They also taught me to treat and see you as less than or inferior. And I've been critical, and I've been finger-pointing, but God has shown me it was wrong, it was sin, and I am sorry. Into this racially polarized culture, Peter looks inside his heart, and he says, you know what's the problem? Right here. Me. God revealed my prejudice and then he repents. He actually has this major revelation in verse 34, 35. You can underline this. He says, I now realize, new thought, that's what repentance means, new thinking. I now realize how true it is that, let's say, big loud voice church, ready? God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. It's amazing when God drops the scales from your eyes, rolls up the window shade, and you see something you didn't even know was there. You ever have that happen? Maybe not like as, as obvious or overt, because you're probably like, hey, man, I'm not a racist, and I understand that. But sometimes it's the subtle stuff we live with. I was talking after last week after the service. A woman came up to me, and she said, so Pastor Tim, she goes, oh, I'm Dominican. She goes, you may not have known that. I have very light skin. And she goes, I work in a corporate world, work in a, an office with majority white people, except in our department there's one other Dominican, but he's dark-skinned. But you have to understand, back in my country, light-skinned and dark-skinned Dominicans, we don't mix. And because I'm light-skinned, I've been accepted by the, you know, kind of the white group, and we go out to lunch together, and my fellow countryman doesn't even come with us. And I just realized, like, today, after the message, this isn't a black-white thing, I just realized that I need to walk across the room tomorrow morning and make that right. I need to say something, actually invite him to join us for lunch. Revelation. The Holy Spirit 
revealed that to her heart and prompted her to act. If you are a follower of Christ, you are called by God to not run away, but to actually lean into awkward situations with humility that brings healing. My Dominican sister had a revelation last week, right? God's spirit revealed a blind spot that she had at work. Can I ask this? What has God been revealing to you lately? What blind spots has the gospel been shining light on? If, if you're here this morning, again, any race, and you're like, I don't think I have any blind spots. Now you got one, okay? <laughs> you know what they say, right? If you can't spot it, you got it. <laughs> As humans who are prone to sin, we all have biases that we're blind to. And what I found is, at least in my own life, there are really three things that kind of blind people, particularly to racial bias. The first is pain, if you're taking notes. Past hurts and wounds that we have had. Maybe you're here today and you're like, I'm so glad you're talking about this. Because you've been discriminated against or treated unfairly at some point. Again, last week, Keon and Jason, they just kind of opened our eyes to how they've been treated differently, you know, in barber shops or, or, or by the police. And, and many minorities feel grief and pain over ongoing inequalities in the justice system. But watch. At the same time, I've had white people say to me, you know what, Tim, my, my father was denied a, a position or a promotion, even though he was qualified, he was the first one in line, but that job was given to a minority. And you know what, I understand affirmative action, but it hurt our family. Again, we're just talking real world, okay? There is hurt and there is pain on all sides of the aisle. And when we've been injured ourselves or we feel like we've been discriminated against, it is very hard, if not impossible, to feel empathy and compassion for others. The second blinder to bias is privilege. Again, I can speak for myself, right? This is me speaking. As a, as a white man growing up middle class in a predominantly white culture, I was born with certain benefits and opportunities that other races didn't have. Is it, is it okay to just acknowledge that? I'm not saying you should feel guilty for being white. That's false guilt. Listen. Whatever color you are, whatever race, whatever ethnicity, never apologize for how God made you or the color of your skin. God made you that way. You celebrate that. At the same time, if you don't think there's such a thing as white privilege, it's probably because you're white, okay, like me. It's just a fact. In our world, there are doors open to Anglos in our country that historically we didn't have to fight to kick open. But if you're part of majority culture, you typically don't see that. You just assume, like I have most of my life, that everybody has the same opportunity as you. I have not seen it for most of my life. And still, I started asking my minority friends, I said, hey, what's your experience been? And it's opened my eyes to some of the struggles that I've never faced growing up as part of majority culture. Again, that is not blaming white people, making anyone feel guilty. It's false guilt. Be proud of your culture. But acknowledge your background can cause blind spots. And it's compounded by the third blinder to hidden bias in the heart, and that is the press or the media. Again, you'll notice this is not a political message. In fact, you probably noticed I have intentionally steered clear of all that right, left, conservative language, you know, conservative liberal talking points and like, you know, back and forth. But here's the deal. Here's the truth. I just noticed today, I was like praying about this morning. I was like, that is absolutely true. There will be many of you who walk out of here today and you're like, well, that was some political message. You will actually read politics into that. Can I tell you why? Can I just call out the truth? It's because your worldview is shaped more by watching cable news than watch reading the word of God. That's just the truth. And it warps your perspective. You can't help but see everything through a political lens because the media promotes an us versus them mentality over every issue. Remember this. The media never reports what God thinks. 
it is always what men think. And there are always two answers to every question. There's God's answer, and there's everyone else's, and everyone else is wrong. Peter said, I was wrong. All this time, I thought I was seeing things clearly and acting the way I was raised. But now, I realize how true it is that God doesn't show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. And then, he shares with Cornelius' family the good news about Jesus. He's like, here's the big news. Jesus died on the cross. God came in the flesh as an oppressed minority, and he died to reconcile us to God and then reconcile us to each other. You know what reconciliation is? It's when you repair a relationship where it's been damaged by sin or iniquity. He shares this incredible news that anyone, anywhere who believes in Jesus can have their sins forgiven and watch, become a member of God's new family. And this is amazing. While Peter was still speaking these words, verse 44, I love this. The Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. Suddenly the house party turns into a Holy Ghost party, okay? I'd love to preach a message like this. Like you're not even done sharing the gospels and people are like filled with the Spirit. They're speaking in tongues. And then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They've received the Holy Spirit, say it together, just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked Peter to actually what? Stay with them for a few days. See, guys, the gospel doesn't just reconcile us to God. The, that's, that's the heaven. But here on earth, the gospel reaches across racial divides and reconciles people to people as well. Race to race. And the gospel has never been more needed in our nation at this moment. Amen? The gospel is this truth, that you are more wicked and evil than you ever imagined. But in Christ, you're more loved and accepted than you ever hoped. Christ alone forgives sins, even the ugly sin of racism, and he transforms hearts with his love. See, racism requires revelation. First, God's got to show it to you in your heart. Then you respond with repentance. You actually do a 180, and you go in a new way. You think new thoughts, and the result is beautiful. It's biblical reconciliation. As we saw last week, Ephesians 2 tells us this. Paul writes, for Christ himself has brought peace to us. He did what? What's the word? United Jews and Gentiles into one people. When in his own body on the cross, Jesus broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. I love how honest and, and real the Bible is, you know? It like just acknowledges like in our fallen, unredeemed state, there's just this natural hostility between people. There's a wall separating them. But on the cross, he's like, here's what Jesus did. He tore down that wall between the races. Jew and Gentile were reconciled. Black and white restored to relationship. Salvadorans and Mexican, one people. We are now the family of God. Because of Jesus, we are no longer at odds. We actually get to call each other brother and sister. And when our Heavenly Father looks down from heaven, just remember, he didn't see the color of our skin. Black, white, brown, yellow. He only sees one color. What color? Red the blood of his son, Jesus. That's what unites us as one family under God. Amen? Let me show you a beautiful picture of Jesus' brand new family. This is the family of Pastor John and Carrie Cords. Pastor John leads our Somerset County campus, and he and his wife, Carrie, were blessed with three beautiful biological daughters. I don't know if you can pick them out. <laughs> Sadie's 14, Lainey is 12, Ansley is eight, but they felt God calling them to actually expand their family through adoption, 
And so they added three more. Malachi, who's 13, twin sisters, Ariana and Ayana, they're both 12. Now, I want you to imagine an awkward moment if you met Pastor John. And he walked up to him and said, wow, dude, big, big family there. Hey, which, which ones are your real kids, John? First off, let me warn you. If you ask Pastor John that, he will punch you in the face. And I will do nothing about it, okay? I'm just telling you, okay? Why? Because the dumb question, they're all his children, both legally and by love. They come from different fathers, different races, but they got the same daddy now, amen? Pastor John's their daddy. And they all bear his last name, Cords. They're now brothers and sisters. It's a beautiful picture of the brand new family of God who bear the name Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus doesn't call you to tolerance. He calls you to love. The best this world can say is, I tolerate you as different. But the church can say, I love you like family. Why settle for the soft bigotry of tolerance when Jesus Christ created a brand new family with his blood? Liquid, as your pastor, can I challenge you? Let's be that church. Known for outrageous unity amidst our dazzling diversity. I mean, we are already a pretty diverse church. Did you know that? Let me, let me show you something kind of cool. I want to show you the racial makeup of our church based on a survey we took last fall. Right now, if you took all liquid campuses, let me show you our church complexion. We are 56% white, and New Jersey is actually 57% white, so we're a little bit under that. We are 23% Latino. New Jersey is 19% Latino if you look at the census, so we're about 4% over that. We are 9% black or African-American. I'll use a broader bucket, just say black. And about 12% Asian. And I look at that and I'm like, praise God. <laughs> you say praise God when you see that? I hope the diversity of our church will continue to grow as long as I'm pastor here. Why? So that I can better prepare you for heaven. <laughs> if you're like, I don't know if I'm comfortable with diversity, you ain't going to like heaven. <laughs> You want to know what the racial profile of heaven is? Revelation 7, 9 describes it this way. John says, I saw a great multitude that no one could count from, say it together, every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne, all worshiping God together. That's your future family as a Christian. Heaven reveals this multi-ethnic family with this glorious racial profile. Every tribe, people, and tongue. That's God's dream. That's where you are headed as a follower of Jesus. So understand, heaven is not going to like, you know, dissolve your racial differences. The race that you are right now on earth will be the race you are in heaven. If you are Latino now, you'll be Latino in heaven. Asian now, Asian in heaven. Black now, black in heaven. If you're white now, you still won't be able to dance in heaven. I'm just saying, all right? God's dream is unity in Christ amidst diversity in his family. And it's got to be our dream too, guys. And I just want to promise you as your pastor, I'm going to give my strength to that. I'm not afraid of this issue. And I don't want you to be either. Now is the time for the church to stand up and say to a culture that's divided and dazed and confused, we're going to lead the way with racial reconciliation and unity. Amen? You know, a couple of years ago, I had someone come up to me. It was a white guy. He's not no longer at this church. But he said to me, um, he came kind of concerned. He said, hey, Pastor Tim, I don't know if you've noticed this, but there's, um, there's more and more Hispanics coming to our church. And I said, yeah, isn't that cool? It's wonderful, isn't it? And I could tell from, like, the look on his face, like, he didn't think so cool, all right? And he says, well, you know, it depends. He kind of laughed. He says, you know, next thing you know, you're going to have to put uh, subtitles on the screen, you know? 
so they can read the song lyrics. And I said, you better brush up on your Spanish, you know? And then he leaned in and lowered his voice and said, hey, look, I'm just saying, it just makes me a little uncomfortable. And honestly, if this church gets too Latino, I may leave. You know what I said? Adios, amigo, okay? <laughs> honestly, guys, I felt like maybe it was my flesh, but I did feel like saying, like, hey, don't let the door hit you where the good Lord splits you, okay? That's from 3 Timothy, all right? My translation. Guys, as long as I am privileged to be your pastor, let us be that glorious multi-ethnic family that Jesus gave his life to create, amen? Every race, every tribe, every nation at this table. So here's the next step for you. If you're here today and you're like, what do I do next, Tim? What's a practical step? As a member of this church family, I want to encourage you, get to know your brothers and sisters. Take advantage of the diversity in this house and expand your perspective. If you're white, ask your black and Latino, you know, brothers and sisters out to coffee. Ask what their experience has been. You will have your eyes open. And if you're like, well, you know, Tim, I don't, I don't really actually have any, you know, black or Latino or minority friends to ask. Get some. <laughs> I'm, I'm serious. Broaden your friend group if you want to broaden your perspective. I, I know, I can, some of you are like, Pastor Tim, are you telling me to find a black dude and say, will you be my friend? Yes. <laughs> Let, let me tell you something. When, when we started this church, my circle was this big. It was so small. I graduated from a high school that had three black kids in the graduating class. I went to a predominantly white Anglo college. But since we started this church, my racial circle has been stretched and grown so wide in breadth and depth. That is one of the blessings of being in a church like Liquid because I now have friends I now have fellow leaders and pastors who are black, who are Asian, who are Puerto Rican, who are Indian. I work with Koreans and Latinos and Ecuadorians and Brazilian. And guess what? I love it because I'm learning so much. God is using it to radically enlarge my view of his kingdom. This is my new family, which is so much bigger than my little Anglo slice of the world. So that's a small step if you're wondering what to do next. Do what Peter did. Peter heard God's spirit speaking to him. And he stepped across the tracks, and he got to know Cornelius, went to his house, broke bread with his family, and it was awkward and scary at first, but God blessed it big time. Suddenly, a Jewish fisherman and a Roman soldier, formerly enemies, become brothers in Christ. That's the power of the gospel. That's racial reconciliation. It takes people of different backgrounds, political perspectives, and ethnic origins, and makes them family. Beautiful picture. So let me challenge you to follow Peter's example. Reach out to brothers and sisters in this church family. I'm serious. Go out to lunch. Grab coffee. Invite one another into your life groups. Ask questions. Learn to listen. Pray together. Weep together. Celebrate together. Live life together. And, and can I just ask a favor of my minority brothers and sisters as, as, your, as your white brother in humility? If you're black or you're Asian or you're Latino, or other, whatever it is, please be patient with us. We're going to say dumb stuff, okay? So let me just forgive us in advance. That's not our heart. Racial harmony is hard, dirty work, but please don't push away from the table. If we're going to walk in multi-ethnic friendship, it requires humility on both sides. So let's not just go to church together on Sunday. Let's live together like family. Get in each other's lives. Because of Christ, we're one family, one family, one, under God, red and yellow, black and white. As Paul wrote in Galatians, he says, So in Christ Jesus, you're all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with what? 
Christ. So it doesn't matter what you wear, language you speak, what kind of music you like. You are clothed in Christ, and you're all children of God through faith. And what does family do? Family sticks together. So if you see a brother or sister being put down, you stand up. You speak up. You stick up for him and her. Guys, I didn't want to hedge today. When it comes to race, God has spoken on this matter, and he didn't stutter. We've got to inspect our hearts and call it out, because racism is sin. And as long as supremacy exists in any form, from institutional racism to the subtle joke that we kind of tolerate at the lunch table, it's sin. And Christ's followers need to lead the way in calling it out and repenting before a holy God. Because anytime we see someone as less than or ourselves more than, we dishonor Jesus. Christ paid for this unity, guys, with his blood. And hypocrisy dishonors his sacrifice. It is out of step with the gospel. Paul boldly declares my favorite verse in Galatians, verse 28. Think about this in the first century when he wrote these words. He said, here's a new reality. There is neither, say it together, Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you're all what? One in Christ Jesus. When Paul wrote those words, he shook the first century culture. He shook the Jews. He shook the Gentiles. He shook the slave owners. Because never before in human history... Had someone dared to declare equality among the races, classes, and sexes, the gospel built a bridge over every divide, guys. And notice the order that Paul addresses them in. Do you notice something? Some of you already got it. You're like, wait a minute. Look, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female. Where have we heard this before? Paul was Jewish. He grew up every morning reciting a certain prayer that his daddy taught him. God, thank you for not making me what? A Gentile, thanks for not making me God a slave. Thanks for not making me a woman. And Paul says, no more, wrong prayer. What's the gospel? What's the good news? That you are all what? One in Christ Jesus, amen? Amen. Guys, those words shook the ancient world. It became a battle cry in the church. And it was the early church that threw open her doors to every tribe, every nation and tongue, to Greeks, to Africans, to rich people, to poor people. It was the church Your church that championed racial and gender equality in a bitterly divided culture and helped heal the divide. Guys, this is how, that's the message we have. This is how the gospel helps heal a broken world. When people like you and me, bold Christ followers, stand up and say, you know what? In a moment of national crisis, I'm not going to be silent. When our world seems upside down and the social fabric is unraveling before our eyes, we will proudly proclaim God's truth. In Christ, we have more that unites us than divides us. Amen? Never forget this. The united kingdom of Christ is stronger than the divided states of America. May our church family be God's family with unity and justice for all. Amen? Let's bow our heads and pray together. Come on, church. Father, today we come to you, Spirit of God, with humility, with repentance. God, search our heart. We repent. If there's any unconfessed sin or you shining the light, God, to even little slivers in there, Lord, we ask you for the power to change our heart. Let the change start in our church, God. Illuminate the dark places. Just cover us with the spirit of unity amidst our diversity. Father, I ask by the power of the gospel, may we experience reconciliation, healing, and deep friendship with you and one another. By your grace, grow us into the church that you dreamed of. May we be one as you are one. It's in Jesus' name we pray and for his glory.
Everybody said together, amen. Thanks for listening to Liquid Church Media. If you were inspired or challenged by today's message, we hope you'll tell a friend. For more content, log on to liquidchurch.com or visit one of our campuses in the New Jersey metro area. Liquidchurch.com, where truth is relevant and grace wins.